Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Liberal Arts Endeavor, a podcast by Michigan State University's College of Arts and Letters. Here, we're dedicated to driving a continued conversation about the importance of public presence in an online space. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This season, we're refocusing on the value of humanist perspective in the digital age and slowing down a bit to foster a culture of care and listening. On each new episode, we follow Chris Long, Dean of the College of Arts and Letters, as he takes us somewhere new to meet arts and letters students and faculty where they work. Today's episode features Kenitra Brooks, Audrey and John Leslie Endowed Chair in Literary Studies in the Department of English at Michigan State University. In alignment with social distancing and shelter-in-place regulations in Michigan in response to COVID-19, Dean Long spoke with Brooks via Zoom to discuss her work and digital presence. Here are Dean Long and Kenitra Brooks. All right, so Kenitra Brooks, welcome to the Liberal Arts Endeavor. Hi, thank you for having me. It is great to have uh, you on the Liberal Arts Endeavor, and this is uh, being taped in the midst of the coronavirus outbreak, and so we're all at a distance from one another, and I guess the first thing I want to ask you is kind of where are you and and how are you? (laughs) (laughs) I am uh, in New Orleans, so I came home to take care of my elderly parents and to prevent them from going out to restaurants and eating and driving and things like that. So um, we now go out uh, once a week. My dad's allowed to drive me to the grocery store and I go get everything with like gloves and a mask and everything. But but listen, I have to say that I've been a prepper all of my life because of the whole zombie apocalypse stuff and everything, the horror stuff. So everyone's like, okay, you've been proven right. I was like, I've been right the whole time. <laughs> I don't know that this is something we wanted to be, you to be right about, but it is nice to know. <laughs> it, it is. I'm like checking off the list. I've been correct. <laughs> but also like since uh, we're all transitioning and moving, I don't have my whole thing set up. And I'm like all of my like go bags and all this stuff and my jarred canned goods and everything else. It's 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 replenishing and my my parents are like you get something from amazon every day i was like yes because when the water goes we need something we need water purification tablets people right right so how, i mean are and your parents are okay and everybody's it's good health they are they are everyone's good um my sister and brother-in-law are right around the corner so i go over there help with homeschooling come back <laughs> um Things are going really, really well, as well as possible um, right. here. Uh, what about you? How are you doing? Yeah, no, uh, we're, we're doing okay. I mean, the girls are, um, I have uh, two daughters, 14 and 15, and they're, they're trying to adjust to what it, me- what it might mean not to have school for the rest of the, of the year. Right now, we're kind of taking it one, one week at a time with, with that. My um, older daughter was all excited to go to Germany for spring break with the orchestra that they uh, were very excited about that. So that's not going to happen. And, and so I think we're all kind of dealing with um, kind of disappointment of we've got seniors graduating, can't celebrate graduation, you know, and and so there's a lot of this processing that we're doing, but the keep coming back to the most important thing is we're together, we're healthy, and we're we're doing what we need to do to keep the community safe by by staying home and 
and practicing social distancing. So, so I, you know, as far as that goes, it, we're good. I, I've been thinking a lot and working with our staff about just making sure all of our staff are okay. The faculty are, you know, doing this remote teaching is exhausting. And now they, now people have to, as you mentioned, homeschool and become all of a sudden their elementary school teachers and as, as well as everything else. So it's, it's a lot. My rule is I don't do anything with numbers. I'm like, you know, Auntie Katie is there for all of these things, but once numbers come into play, you got to go to someone else. <laughs> you yes. got to go to someone else. We're um, going to be, cre- you'll be creating some awesome writers, I'm sure, <laughs> coming out, coming out of and there. And a reader. That's, that's <laughs> my jazz. That is my jazz. I have a lane. Exactly. Um, but what I will say is that this really takes you down to the essentials of what's important in life. It really, really does, of who's important why we need to take care of each other, why we have these these strong familial and work relationships and things like that. Everyone in the English department has just been wonderful, a lot of communication. Justice justice has been awesome. AAAS has been continuing to get things going. Um, I was speaking to Chrissy this morning. And um, yeah, it, it we are able to carry on, but we also it keeps us mindful of what's truly important and and priorities. Exactly. I I really appreciate your point there. It's something that we've been really trying to build into the fabric and the life of the college through the culture of care and and trying to be mindful during times that are um, not crisis moments. So that when we are also in a crisis time like this, that we can, can rely on the, those caring relationships that we, we, we've built and we have a little bit more resilience in those, those times. And I re, I'm really hoping that this can be an opportunity for us as we eventually return to be together physically with one another, that we can remember um, the, the care we took of each other at a distance and, and appreciate our physical presence with each other in a new way once, we, once we're back together. Yeah, you kind of miss seeing everyone and, you know, just seeing people in the hallway and stuff like that and saying hello. And I think that that sort of connection um, is important as well. Right. And, you know, I just got here, so I'm still in the midst of like meeting up with new colleagues for like coffee and breakfast and these sorts of things and having um, the initial dinners and stuff like that. So um, to put a halt to some of those things, you know, um, it's, it makes you miss it, but it also, everyone understands, right? Everyone's schedule simply opened up. <laughs> it was like, yes, I have time to do that. Sure. Yes, exactly. And now we're seeing people doing uh, virtual happy hours on Zoom and, and all kinds of other things. So it's really neat to see that we're, we're, we're not letting the distance uh, keep us apart in, in that sense. And, um, you know how, how's Ams doing? I saw I I, I talked to him on uh, a Zoom on Monday a little bit because he was on the staff um, Zoom. Yeah, he's really enjoying it. He's really enjoying it. He loves the new position. He's having a really good time. And thank you guys so much for taking care of us. I really appreciate that. Oh yeah, yeah. He uh, so he's there. He's he's in Spartan Village, is what you're yeah, saying. And you're yeah, down. yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
All right, we're gonna make sure he's he's got what he needs to you he know does. keep going. He does. All right, completely. <laughs> That's good. The other thing I was gonna tell you is, you know, I got this book right here, N.K. Jemison. So, you know, on your recommendation, I started reading, and of course, I'm in the middle of reading this when all this I, happens. So I'm nothing. like, oh gosh, come on, this is great. Welcome so to my season. world. Welcome to my world. I'm it's so good. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, for those of you who are not watching the video, it's N.K. Jemison's uh, fifth season, and maybe that could bring us into a little bit of a conversation about about your work, Kenitra, and 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 what you're working on these days. So right now, I'm really focusing on concepts called contrafeminism. So I'm looking at Black women's spirit practices, um, both within and outside of Christianity. Um, and how they use their spiritual practices to build new worlds, right? And I want to sort of reevaluate how we look at Black women to see them as thinkers, to see them as philosophers, to see them as these complex beings that a lot of times we're taken for granted in sort of like, oh, we know what you think, we know who you are, you know, you guys are outspoken, all of these things, but there are a lot of hidden worlds that Black women have, and they are very much connected and interwoven um, with their religious practices. And I'm really into exploring. Um, that's what my second book is going to be about. And then how some of those those women take those the ways of thinking, so, sort of like a Zora Neale Hurston, who was a writer, but who was also um, who also did a lot of autoethnography auto-ethnographic projects, right? Um, I'm being inspired by her. Um, I'm doing my own auto-ethnographic project. I should be able to say it, but I wanna say auto-ethnography. So I'm working on the auto-ethnography aspect of it, um, dealing with um, uh, Lukumi and working in Cuba and going through some of the religious practices to really understand how these then influence the writers, right? Writers like N.K. Jemison, writers like Nalo Hopkinson, right? A lot of these women are practitioners or either these writers are very familiar, familial, familiar, I'm sorry, I can't speak, <laughs> familiar uh, with these worlds and with these ideas. And so there's a lot of influence, you know, building your own mythologies based on West African gods and goddesses and Orishas and Loas from Haiti and Orishas from Cuba and all of these things, they're influencing the literature, right? So I'm sort of going back to the essence, the foundation, how that spirituality is a nugget and a foundation for so many creative endeavors that Black women are doing right now. Yeah, that's, that I, I just um, finished rereading uh, Sister Outsider, Audre yeah. Lorde's uh, text, and it seems to me that, uh, that you know, her her call for going back to you know the gods within us and those ancestral and ancestral gods um, uh, are is is connected to what you're working on. Yeah, and a lot of it is you know I'm I refer to myself as an Afrofuturist. I am an Afrofuturist. I'm considered an Afrofuturist as a scholar, but um, I think a lot of times Afrofuturism is misread. And um, it's not just about Black folks in the future. My area of Afrofuturism deals with um, the recovery project of what was lost in the Middle Passage, what was lost during Jim Crow, what was lost um, during enslavement. So a lot of Afrofuturism is also of going back 
and interweaving and rediscovering and deciding what will we take with us to the future, right? And there are things that have been lost. Now, also we need to evaluate because some things need to be kept in the past. We don't want to bring with us. But part of my job is going and rediscovering those, those old ways that were lost and those old ways that have been purposely covered over to show that they are rich cultural projects that we want to revamp, revise, and bring with us to the future of Afrofuturism. Yeah, the the work that you're doing, and I think you know, I've had some good conversations with Julian Chambliss too about the Black mm -hmm. Imaginary and, and Afrofuturism in, in in that sense as well. How are you um, thinking about that this this area developing uh, here at MSU? Couple of ways. So what we're working on now is uh, Black women's. Um, fantasy conference symposium that's going to take place in April 2021. Uh, we're bringing in N.K. Jemison. We're also bringing in those uh, writers and creators sort of in the generation before her. So we're looking at Nalo Hopkinson, Tanana Redu, who were writers and who helped influence her, um, as well as those that uh, Nora N.K. Jemison is now influencing. So Justina Ireland, Hopefully we can get um, her, Tommy Adeyemi, uh, Danielle Clayton. Um, so we've got this sort of expanding and exploding world of black women's fantasy. And we wanna make sure that they are given their due recognition. Um, we're very much um, a part of black feminist ethic is giving people their flowers while they're here, right? You know, you don't go like, oh, I wish I'd have done this. It's like, no, you're doing good work now. We want to reward you. We want to um, celebrate you and celebrate work. It's a bit of a festref for um, NK because her work, she is someone who has been grinding so long. She's come up through the system, right? And she's been such a good and generous person with her time, with her energy for everyone. We want to celebrate her, but also it's not, also recognizing that it's not just about her as the individual. It's about the community of women all working together and helping and et cetera, right? So N.K. Jemison is who she is because Nalo Hopkinson, who is not, not now as well known as N.K. is now, but because Nalo Hopkinson, because she was more well known, reached back and helped, uh, you know, made sure that N.K. got to publish her short story here and these sorts of things. So we want to make this a communal celebration, but we also want to acknowledge their importance as academic subjects. We wanna start having conversations about their archives. We wanna start making sure that MSU and Michigan State and speaking with uh, Julian Chambliss becomes a go-to place for Afrofuturism and a go-to place um, for those sorts of archives, for uh, fellows, for researchers to do that work, as well as integrating the creative part of it too, right? So we wanna make sure there's both the scholarship and the creative parts that are interwoven. And um, no one else is really doing that on this scale. And that's what, um, what I believe in, what Dr. Chambliss believes in, that's what um, the English department, AAAS, that's what you um, as the Dean, has, you've been so supportive of it. And we wanna make sure that Michigan State becomes a leader and innovator in this field 
as well as other places just aren't doing it the way that we're able to do it. And um, that's been a slow build, right? Hiring the right people, getting them in place, getting people interested in the speculative, right? And now it's all starting to really come together. You have Dr. Chambliss with his comic books, um, and um, the conference that he has on a yearly basis. And um, with, the, with the chair, um, I want to start making sure we're doing something every other year, right? And every other year as a way of to really build up to something. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, one of the things that excites me about um, this work is the and also in the way that you've described it, is that you're really talking about putting into practice some of the basic um, the basic principles of Afrofuturism, of, of Black feminist practice, with respect to doing justice to, recognizing and caring for those who have um, been uh, the, the support and the, and the legacy that has uh, allowed people to thrive and and those who have supported that work in the past, bringing them forward, recognizing them, celebrating uh, them, as we uh, also imagine a new future where the work can be studied, where the work, where the ideas in in, in the work can shape and inform uh, a more just and and beautiful future. And we learned this from uh, Black feminist literary theory, Black feminist writers, because. Um, in the 80s into some parts of the 90s, we lost a whole generation due to cancer, um, due to, you know, the way that academia and the world just wears on Black women so their bodies turn against themselves. We lost Audre Lorde. We lost June Jordan. We lost Barbara Christian, right? And they're so celebrated now. And they were celebrated then, you know, um, later in life. But we want to make sure that we put into practice we're going to celebrate you all throughout your career. You know, we're going to appreciate you and we're going to appreciate not just you as an individual, but your relationship, right? Have you developed those healthy relationships where you're not simply focused on you? Are you putting together that black feminist ethic of care? Um, I know we just, uh, we just hired Ruth Nicole Brown in AAAS. Um, we're in the process of hiring Tamara Lomax. Um, this is that black feminist ethic of care. Um, that Christy Dotson writes about. Um, we want to make sure that it's put into place in all aspects, not just in Black feminism, but in all aspects of the, of you know of Michigan State and how we operate here. Yeah, that that's so important to ensure that that commitment to this new department and to the work that you're doing in the English department and across our, our college also gets woven into the fabric of the institution and the university because the, to me that's the the key to the future of higher education more broadly we, we really need to be in a much more uh, um, care oriented intersectional uh, intersectionally aware uh, phase where we are where we're taking care of each other and understanding all the different dimensions of power and how it operates and how it operates differently mm -hmm. on, on different people. And I think it's also clear, it, we, we must also make clear that none of this means a lessening of rigor. I think sometimes that's used as a, as a problematic excuse for not doing the work, 
right? This encourages you to do the work, but also to do it longer, to do it healthier, to be around longer, right? And that, um, you know, no one should bear all of the burdens. And so many of us are doing the writing, are doing the research, are doing the teaching and um, taking care of our students and all of these things. But we also have to learn balance so that we have the length of a career, not just the sort of, um, not just of, you know, making the splash, being there, and then unfortunately, you know, passing on because you haven't taken care of yourself or your bodies and you haven't taken care of each other. We wanna make sure that people have healthy relationships as scholars with each other, with their own personal relationship. We want people to be whole. We want people to be healthful and that makes them an even better scholar. Yeah, I'm really grateful that you emphasize the importance of, of um, elevating standards, because this is really what I, I yeah. see it as. I mean, we've had uh, Caritha Mitchell come and, and talk to the English department, come to the college uh, in January before all of the coronavirus yeah. uh, unfolded. Uh, happily, we had her on campus early, and, and she makes such a great point about um, inclusive pedagogical practices as an elevating of standards, holding ourselves up to a higher standard standard of expectation with respect to how we're talking about difficult issues around race and and gender and and other um, issues that are that are difficult to to uh, have conversations about, but can be done well if you set the the frame for it in an intentional way. And I think similarly, we have to do this in in higher education more broadly. We see the work that you're doing and that and that your colleagues are doing the, the kind of trust that you need to build to have do that kind of work brings the quality of the scholarship to a whole other level of excellence and it has to be recognized that way yeah and i also think you know how many of us know that scholar across um the identity spectrum who was great but um, as they're getting to another part of their career, they've become embittered. Um, you know, they don't have the healthy relationships around them. You know, I talk to my grad students and I'm like, you're not always gonna be the hottest thing going, right? You know, do we know how to sunset as well, right? Do we know how to say like, you know what? I'm not there anymore, that's okay. I've had the blessings that I have. It's time for me to help other people, help other generations, all these things as I ease my way on out the door. Do we know how to help, helpfully let things go? And I think that is just as important um, with these sorts, sort of things as well. You know, and, and we have to make sure that people have something to go to, right? So many times the university has taken everything from someone, everything, because it's only been about the work. And we can't do that anymore. You cannot keep that up. That is not healthy, a healthy practice. That's not a healthy way to operate. None of it is. And so, you know, how do we make sure that people are not just good when they're young and hot and their career is going well, but when their career has maybe cooled or they've moved to another part, they've moved to administration, they've moved to, you know, they've moved on and they've grown in different ways and letting people know that that's okay. And that, you know, looking forward to the other things that you can do and the other ways we can care for people. 
Yeah, I really appreciate the, the focus on wholeness that you're emphasizing here. It's, um, you know, a, a life, a career has an arc to it, and there are, are different different dimensions that we have to learn how to do justice to. And and that that you know that that turn to, you know, from you know, running to get tenure and get promotion and all that to now turning to help your graduate students and your junior colleagues advance their work and, and move toward the kind of fulfilling career that they want is, is so important. And we've been thinking a lot about how we can create structures within the institution to support yeah. that so that it's not, so that, so that we're not in kind of this mutually extractive mode of relationship where it's where the institution is taking as much from the people and the people are trying to take as much from the institution, but rather yeah. we're trying to, to, to nurture the success of one another. Yeah, and I think that's that's so important. I think there's taking out the competitive aspect of things. There is taking in the idea of common goals. There is a celebrating of the individual, but also the collective. Um, and I think things have to be held in tension. Um, no one is perfect. There are gonna be fits and starts and stops. I do think that that is the sort of ethic of care we're really trying to bring in with the AAAS program of where everyone's a superstar, but there's no like star program, the one person who, you know, a department shouldn't collapse because one person left. It shouldn't, it shouldn't. And there's a way for you to have everyone contributing, everyone being, um, a scholarly and being amazing in their scholarship in their own different ways, where you aren't competing with one another and where you are all filling out each other's strengths and weaknesses. And um, that's really what we're trying to model with AAAS and I really, really admire it. I'm really, really behind it. I think Ruth Nicole Brown is awesome. Um, Tamara Lomax, I've been a fan of her for a long time. Um, this is about how do you do things in a way where you have the output, you're kicking it out, but also you don't hate each other. <laughs> also, your kids play together. <laughs> also, you guys go out for happy hour. Those things are, are important too. And I think sometimes they're diminished or seen as not as important, but they are just as necessary to creating the cohesion that allows you all to shoot to shoot for the stars that allows you all to reach the stratosphere in your careers. Yeah, exactly. I think that, that creating the conditions where people can really uh, take the kind of risks that they need and feel that, you know, they're supported in doing, doing the work that's most meaningful to them and, and to the, to the community. So that, that's the vision here that we're trying to, trying to put into place. And I'm so grateful for your help <laughs> and your, and your vision and your work uh, on, on this. One of the things that I, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, from you is, you know, do you have your own sort of practices of uh, self-reflection, practices that sort of, that you use to restore your energy and, and kind of keep you uh, on the right path? Yes, but I'm not always perfect with them, right? Yeah, <laughs> um, one would, thing yeah, this, sure. this is, you know, I try to employ it, I try to do things, but you know, before, this shutdown occurred, I felt myself sort of getting off track a little bit, right? Um, and I think we also have to be graceful with ourselves, but also hold ourselves to some accountability. Um, I know that my spiritual practice is very important to me. Um, I always encourage with my students, 
whatever you do, you know, you don't, whatever your beliefs are, whatever you need, some sort of foundation or grounding um, that's outside the academy, whether that be your family, whether that be your spiritual practice, um, you need some things that keep you going and that you can retreat from when academia gets too much. Um, so my family, my friendships, uh, the people that I love that hold me accountable. I'm also, um, you know, consistently in therapy. I make sure I take my medication. I have struggled with mental illness and depression and bipolar all of my life. So that is something that I have to stay on top of, very much so. Um, and that's, <clears throat> that's the commitment I have to make to myself to always make sure that I am healthy, that I am doing the work I need to do so that I can be my best. And I also, that's a commitment that I owe the people I work with, the people I love, my family and all of those things, I cannot, get sick in those ways when it's preventable. And it is preventable at this point. I have a wonderful psychiatrist. I have a wonderful therapist. I have a wonderful drug regimen. Um, and keeping that up with my walking, uh, with my yoga, with my working out, you know, people need to, uh, me included, we need to learn how to deal with the adversity of it, to recognize that mental illness is real. And to recognize that it's something you must stay on top of. Yeah, no, I really appreciate that. It's uh, struggling with that a little bit in our family too. Is just you know, it, it's so difficult to get your your head around um, the the mental illness side of it. When you know, I keep feeling like, well, if somebody breaks their arm, you know, you can put a cast on it. It's going to heal up. You see people, you know, but. But the, the mental illness side of it really requires exactly the kind of intentionality around habits and practices and, and attention to what you need, what we need to, to, um, to be healthy and, and supported in our uh, broader lives. I've been thinking a lot about that in the last couple of weeks with the coronavirus mm -hmm. uh, keeping us at home with each other and... and, and <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that, that brings a lot of different things for a lot of people. It, you does. Know? <laughs> it does. It completely does. And, and, um, you know, I've been trying to be more intentional around some meditation practices that yeah. will, you know, keep me focused on being mindful of, you know, just what's happening in, in my present life so that I can, uh, be, um, proactively responsive and not reactive in in my responding yeah. um and that's been really uh, i've i've relied more on that particularly in the last couple of of weeks as and i've been grateful for the the habits that i've started to mm -hmm. to um to build up but you're really right about being um uh, gentle with oneself and forgiving of oneself when you when you you know don't do it exactly the way you had wanted or miss a day or, yeah. or, or whatever and that it takes a while to build up those practices um and I I usually talk to my grad students about this and things like this I had a nervous breakdown in my early 30s so it's taken me what I'm what 40 now it's taken me a while to sort of establish something that is healthy and healthful and that I can sort of manage in a healthy way. But it also takes the commitment of that person, um, but also the support for that person during all of these things. And I, I also think that mm -hmm. 
I don't know if it's because of what we do, being academics, being in our minds all the time, all of these things, you know, we see this come up over and again. We see this come up where we struggle with mental illness in, I think, sometimes unique ways. Um, and I think we are afforded wonderful opportunities um, in some ways, but we also are afforded, you know, very unique challenges as academics. And we almost, we always have to, you know, sort of roll with it, manage things and hold things in tension while also being grateful with ourselves. Yeah, I agree with that. The, the, because so much of our, the life of the academic life is intellectual, it, it becomes even more fraught when, yeah. when we're um, thinking about mental illness issues. And I, I think it's so important for us to share our vulnerability with our graduate students with one another and, 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 and so that, you know, when each of us, as we will struggle or fall down or, or just, you know, encounter um, things that are, are difficult to overcome or have a, 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 a crisis like the one we're living through that yeah. we have some resilience because because we have had this conversation we haven't been pretending all along that we've been perfect from from the beginning and 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 invincible that shame is really I think something we need to continue to deal with I think people are ashamed for it's seen for being sick it's seen as a weakness um, you know, academia, a lot of times, you know, we're, we can be quite pretentious. We can be <laughs> into ourselves. Um, we can project this aura of authority, of perfection, and that that's not always healthy at all. And that admitting that you're sometimes struggling, admitting that there is a struggle, I think helps not only you, but the people around you. Um, because we can't go on the way the way we have been it's it's killing people and yeah, it, it's, it's not yeah. killing them physically it's killing their souls it's killing their emotions who they are and um we need something healthier the work that we're trying to do that we talked about earlier just now around creating the the conditions under which one can be healthy and yeah. and live a fulfilling academic life is exactly what needs to happen so often we we see you know our our graduate students have to alienate themselves from the things they care most deeply about <laughs> as the price they pay for you know writing that dissertation or doing w whatever the academy says is required of them and and we need to figure out how to how to empower our graduate students, our, our faculty, our, our colleagues to, to put those values into practice as they move through the, the kind of career that they wanna have. And, and that's and gonna my, look No, go ahead. No, I was saying that, you know, this goes back to my research, right? What were those spiritual practices that got people through some very difficult times? What are those spiritual practices that, you know, a lot of times, um, and, and, you know, this is me investigating my own family, but also other people, uh, other people's experiences of, you know, a lot of times our um, ancestors, our um, grandmothers, our aunts were very uh, clearly Christian, you know, as we know the power of the black church and all of these things. But there was also a lot of times a lot of whispering about doing conjure, about doing this work, orishas, loas. And 
I'm interested in that sort of that, that, that uh, both and, you know, I think a lot of times they were like, well, I'm very Christian. I do this and what have you. And they identify as Christianity, but not everything they were doing what is what is considered by mainstream Christianity. And what I'm saying is I'm expanding these ideas of some of these practices that were thought of as non-Christian, as maybe they work within these Christian identities that these women had and that, um, you know, they were working on in the kitchen, in the gardens, in those places where they didn't have to fight the sort of the patriarchy and the white supremacy of the black church, right? What would these women's spaces where all of this power and this growth and this thinking, um, both spiritually, intellectually, um, the centering was going on. And that's a lot of where my recovery project is, right? Um, of doing that work and exploring these hidden worlds of Black women in the South and the Caribbean. It's so interesting, this kind of liminal space between kind of the legitimate, you know, religiosity and the and then this this space of, of spiritual power that is, is uh, how are you seeing that line, that, that threshold being drawn? Because it sounds like there's, a, there's a, a, a pretty fluid movement between you know, things that are understood as, as pretty traditional Christian practices and, and the more um, uh, the, the conjuring and the other spiritual practices that are, that are also in play. So I'm looking at this idea of the conjure woman and sort of how she operates. I've looked at the concept of the conjure woman in contemporary popular culture, like um, with Beyonce in the Lemonade um, audiovisual project that she was doing, but also that it's not just Beyonce. We have folks like Princess Nokia. We have Akua Nauru, that she, we have Ibeji, that there's this sort of zeitgeist of people doing this work and exploring the idea of the conjure woman in popular culture, but also tracing it back. <clears throat> and what I am noticing is um, both within my own family, but also in my research as a whole. And a lot of this, you know, research is me search. And, you know, that's where the auto ethnographic portion um, of, of my work um, comes from. But also this idea that Things were a lot more fluid dur during enslavement, um, you know, and the Africanity was a lot more embraced. But in post-emancipation, when we were getting into respectability politics, the movement, the growth of the Black middle class, um, up to about the 50s, 60s, or what have you, you had this sort of we must show this respectability and respectability is this type of Christianity, right? But also you had this practicing where in the black church, the Christianity they, they practice is a lot more African <laughs> than sometimes like to admit, but also a lot of those ties were purposely cut, right? We don't wanna acknowledge that we're doing those bad or evil or demonic religions, but a lot of those practices were incorporated, right? So there's the concept of shouting in the black church, which is a form of spirit possession, which is when you are possessed by the Holy Ghost. Um, but I show that that is very similar to what happens in, um, Haitian Vodou, in Louisiana Vodou, in um, Santeria, Lukumi, 
right? Where there's the idea of spirit possession, right? By the drumming, by the music, of the importance of the music. And I think sometimes folks recognize the gospel, but also not the sort of the also the sort of visceral and the, the mixing of the spiritual and the body, right? In, in the shouting, it's a very physical act of what is happening and what's going on. It's very much mixed with the spiritual. And Angela Davis talks a lot about this in her work on the blues, right? Um, this sort of removal where you get the pure gospel, which is like, you know, that what some people know of. Um, where, cause I can't sing. I was going to sing something, but I can't sing. I was getting ready. I was getting ready, <laughs> but okay. No, I can't sing. Um, as versus to the sort of the visceral nature, uh, that really came out with the blues. There was this division that happened, um, after the emancipation of enslavement, but you also get, I also show my students like, um, folks in the black church on their way to get baptized, dressed all in white. And then I showed them folks at um, at a ceremony in Lucumia Santeria, right? Dressed all in white. Um, then in another like Haitian Vodou, dressed all in white, right? And what I try to say is the Africaneity is going to come out. It is, right? It's there. It's in the essence of who we are and how we practice and these sorts of things. And I think um, there's been a lack of acknowledgement of how influential that has been, right? Um, so we're looking at things such as Robertos slave religion, of how religion and um, Christianity developed in a very African way during enslavement, right? And how some ways those have carried through um, post-emancipation, post but also some of those ties have been purposely cut as well. And so it's my job in rediscovering that. And, and and pulling out, as you said earlier, pulling out the the dimensions that are uh, sustaining and 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 restorative and um, and and spiritually potent, and and the the, the dimensions that are um, you know, problematic for other reasons. I think we you know yeah. we have to intentionally also leave behind, right? Yeah, and you know also with a lot of these religious practices, they're very much focused in where the women are in power. And I really try to have that conversation, that very difficult conversation of where we have this entrenched patriarchy of the Black church. And this became a place in which Black men could experience leadership, economic prosperity, all of these things. But it also removed some, uh, a lot of the sort of agency of the spirituality of Black women. And that participation, a lot of times, women were looking for, wait, you know, where, where am I centered? Where do I have this purpose and these sorts of things? And it was in these religious practices. These were spaces in which the women were in charge. And I also think this is why this was so threatening to the black church, right? Um, that, that there's only this one way in which gender operates, but there's a lot of fluidity within conjure, within, um, and, and I want to be clear, Contra is a set of practices that are influenced by African, they're religious practices. They are not a religion unto themselves. So a lot of ways, Contra was able to have the flexibility to be practiced by Christians, by Muslims, 
by folks who were more associated with Abrahamic religions um, because it wasn't like I'm practicing this other religion. It's just, these are some of the practices that I incorporate. A lot of it dealt with um, herbs, medicinal herbs with healing, um, <clears throat> with uh, where, and this is where I go into the idea of the garden, the conjure woman's garden. These women were growing things. They were healing their communities. And it's not just about growing the vegetables to supplement your food budget, but also of knowing how herbs worked so that you could um, help out your neighbor. Um, in my research, I found that my great grandmother was a conjure woman, that women, that people would go to her all the time to be healed. They would knock on her door and all of these things, that she was a healer. And mm. then going back and tracing back, I'm learning that um, I think I am 15th generation of healers in my family. It's just been what my family has done. And going back to what we were doing in Plaquemines Parish, which is in South Louisiana, and just looking at and tracing the history. So in the larger, I think I speak about the larger Afrofuturism recovery project, but I also speak about it on the micro level of what's been going on and just in my family, right? And all of these practices that were there, that were known of, but were kind of whispered about. I'm so interested in how this knowledge gets passed down when, when you, you don't have a kind of um, orthodoxy that, that you pay, no written texts that get hand down, right? It's, it is in the oral tradition and in the teachings and the practices that's passed down from one generation to the, to the next. And not just that, right? I talk about, um, you know, how all of my book ideas come from dreams my maternal ancestors visiting me in dreams, right? How do you quote that? How do you cite that? <laughs> right, exactly. We need a <laughs> you know? citation format for the dream. What's yeah, the definitely. Citation for dreams. What's <laughs> citation for like someone was spiritually possessed and they told me this, right? Um, you know, and I think that has to be this sort of expansion of what counts as valid ways of knowing. And that's where a lot of Christy Dotson's work comes in, you know, of black women's ways of knowing. You know, I consider that dream and my grandmother or my great-grandmother visiting me in the dream, just as relevant as reading an article, just mm -hmm. as powerful, just as necessary, right? Um, so then how do you incorporate that sort of practice, that sort of um, intellectualism into the academy? It's not always going to work, but it's also in recognizing that you need, to, that also the academy needs to expand ideas of how things work because a lot of stuff is getting done outside of the academy because we can't even intellectually imagine it. Our imagination, our intellectualism is sometimes so limited that it, it can't it can encompass it. And, and we need to, I think it starts by acknowledging it. Yeah, I agree with that. We have uh, such an impoverished sense of of what knowledge is and 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 how um, various dimensions of human knowing and mm -hmm. and encountering the world world unfold. I'm so grateful for for this conversation and for your work. It occurs to me as you as you ask that question around you know how can we integrate this into the into the university, the life of the university. It, it's exactly what we we were talking about earlier on in our conversation around 
recognizing those who came before, honoring them, bringing them together, uh, collecting their works and, and doing all of the, the, the kind of work together that you're talking about doing with the Afrofuturism Symposium and, and, and the intentional work that we're doing together. So thank you, Kenitra, for of joining course. us. It's been great. Oh, thank you. Oh, can I just say that we came up with a name for the uh, Black Women in Fantasy? It's called Fierce Fantasies. Fierce Fantasies, all Fierce right. Fantasies, yeah, yeah. We'll Excellent. have a logo coming soon. Uh, Excellent. Well, it's been great to have you here on the Liberal Arts Endeavor. Thank you so much for having me. A big thank you to everyone involved with this podcast, including our technical producer, Dan Trago, our marketing director and producer, Ryan Kilcoyne, and our interns, Dante Smith and Anya Delan. You can access every episode of the Liberal Arts Endeavor podcast online at cal.msu.edu forward slash about forward slash podcasts. The opinions expressed on this program do not reflect official entities of Michigan State University. See you next time on Liberal Arts Endeavor.